Acts chapter 2, I was looking at this verse, and usually it's uh, grouped in all the way to verse 47, and I just wanted to kind of stay here in verse 42, just sink into verse 42. The title of the sermon is Growth in Christ Through Spiritual Disciplines. Why don't you pray with me? Father in heaven, we come before you. We, we even, as we sang, the strength to follow your commands could never come from me. Even these disciplines that we are hearing about this morning so that we can grow, even that, it can't even come from me. I need, I need your power. I need your grace. I need you to serve us, God. You have to serve us. As Peter, when Peter said, no, Jesus, I don't want you to wash my feet. And Jesus says, if I don't wash you, you will have no part of me. We need you, Christ. We need you to help us to understand and to hear your word, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. In this uh, chapter, we know that Peter's still preaching the sermon. Peter finished the sermon, and I didn't finish the sermon. But Peter's finished the sermon. I remember... Um, Back in my hometown, I have a brother I know very well. He's married. He has a wife. He has a child. I believe he knows Christ, but he and his wife have not really grown to their full potential. He's not really led his family in the spiritual disciplines given to us by God for the growth of the individual and for the church. Thereby, he's robbing himself of the blessings of growing, robbing himself of the blessings of the church, and using his gift in the church. He was kind of spotty in his devotion to it. Sadly, as the trials come, and they come against his wife, and they come against him, he has no sound ground to stand on, no firm footing. He's incredibly gifted, yet he doesn't exercise his gifts completely at maximum potential within the body of Christ. Many of his peers, I've known him over 25 years, and many of his peers have surpassed him in growth in the Lord. I would say he's still a babe in Christ. Never came to Sunday school on how to lead in his marriage in Christ. Never came to learn about how to raise his kids in the Lord. Never really availed himself to the resources of the church, which is God's method to cause him to grow. It's been 25 years. And sadly, he has very little fruit to show for it. Now, we know that God causes the increase, but he uses us as we get moving. And God, uh, God has asked us and he is calling us to be disciplined in our lives, empowered by Christ, by the Holy Spirit. This was not the case with him. He didn't, he didn't depend on Christ. He didn't trust in Christ. and let, He just allowed his attendance and his growth just to kind of be spotty. It would be like someone who is uh, eating once in a while, once every two weeks, once every month, rather than having a healthy diet to be strong. In the Lord, he was the living case of Hebrews chapter five, verse 12, when it says there, for though by this time you ought to be teachers. You have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God, and you have come to need milk and not solid food for everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. 
It's a sad, sad place to be. It is one thing when a baby acts like a baby. It is quite another when a teenager acts like a baby and has fits. It's not cute. There's no maturity there. And God has given us these blessings, which is the local church, that we must avail ourselves to. Sadly, when it comes to excelling in sports or in our careers, it's elementary for someone to dedicate themselves to these disciplines required. Whether it be practice or training or studying, there is an, F, there is an element of discipline and effort involved. In the book of Acts, God displays for us what should be the normal, not radical, not elite, the normal Christian life that is growing in Christ. He describes the disciplines, if you will, of what a Christian should dedicate themselves for their entire lives if they want to grow, obey, and make an impact in their families, friends, and world around them for Christ. Now turn with me to Acts chapter 2. Of course, we're only going to um, concentrate on verse 42, but I want to look at verses 36 to 42 to get the flow of it. In Acts chapter 2, verse 36 to 42, it says, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus Christ whom you crucified. To give a, a kind of background, Peter is preaching to a crowd that was hostile to Christ, that eventually killed Christ, and now he is calling them to repent. Verse 37, now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brethren, what shall we do? Peter said to them, repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. And with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Verse 41. So then those who had received his word were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. And then here comes our text, verse 42. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. I do have some notes if you want to follow along. If you, uh, if you want some notes, you can just raise your hand. I think everyone has. No more, we're out. Okay, we don't have notes, so sorry. <laughs> Next time we'll print more, okay. In this passage, God calls you to be completely absorbed in the growth of both your own soul and your local church. God is calling you, if you claim to be a Christian, to be completely absorbed. If I were to even use the word fanatical, swallowed up in your own growth in the Lord and the growth of the local church. You're not to be passive. You're not to be sitting on the pews, as it were, or sitting on the bleachers. You are to be in the game. And how are you in the game? This is not a text. Notice, this is not a text just for preachers or just for pastors or just for missionaries. Oh, they should be the dedicated ones. They should be committing themselves to these things. While I put clock in at church, clock out at church, and then I'm done. My whole week, I just do, I live for myself. But on Sunday, I'm going to clock in and clock out. That is not what God calls you to do if you name the name of Christ. 
Now, before we move on to the disciplines, we have to take a look at just who these folks were who were completely absorbed in their growth and in the growth of the church. Notice it says they were continually devoting themselves. These they, of, as we've seen in verse 23, are the same people who uh, Peter indicts, he says in verse 23, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men. You were complicit with Jesus' murder. Your hearts did not want him over you. You were the ones. It's interesting, the transformation that occurs. Notice verse 38. Verse 38, as we read, it says, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. This is, this is the same group Peter is preaching to them, and then he calls them to change their minds about Christ. He calls them to change their hearts about Christ. He calls them to respond in faith to the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 41, these are the people who turn to him. Those who had received his word were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. The word therefore received means to welcome. It's like you welcome a guest. It's an embrace. It's a hug. They welcomed Christ into their lives. You do not skip this. Don't think these are principles that can be added to any other kind of book. This is not principles for any kind of growth apart from Christ. You cannot skip this. You cannot grow in your new life in Christ if you don't have a new birth in Christ. All of it starts there. And now, it's not only there. So if a ministry is simply focused on sharing the gospel, simply on evangelism, but not discipling folks, it is not a ministry that is biblical. The Bible calls us to not just be saved in Christ, to put our faith in Christ, but to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now notice he says they. So who are these they? They are the 3,000 plus the 140. They are the ones who have been saved. They are the ones who have repented. They are the ones who have confessed and been baptized in Christ. Now these people, it says here, they were continually devoting. This is an interesting word. And this sets up the whole passage of verse 42. Okay? Were. It's um, in the Greek, it's, it's um, in the imperfect tense, which indicates a habit. They're characteristically engaged in. It was their lifestyle. It was what they were known for. They were always doing this. Apostles' teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayer. The word continually devoting, if you want to write it down and impress your friends, but don't do that, is proskartereo, uh, right? It means to, um, to be, have a strong, to be, to be strong, to continue steadfastly, to persevere, to give attention to a thing, to be devoted or constant, to give unremitting care to, to not faint, faint at something. Another dictionary or a lexicon says it means to be loyal to, to attach oneself to, to associate closely with, to occupy oneself diligently with, to hold fast to, to cling to, to persevere in. Another, uh, are you getting the drift? 
Another dictionary says it means to adhere firmly, to be faithful. Another one says to continue to do something with intense effort despite difficulty. Another one says to busy oneself with, to busily engage in, to spend much time in. It is your preoccupation. It is the tempo of your life. This is how God would have you live. This word is used in Mark chapter 3, verse 9. Um, you don't have to turn there. I'll just read it. It says, he told his disciples that a boat should stand ready for him because of the multitude. The word there for stand ready, being ready, always available, waiting on, some, waiting on it. Acts chapter 10, 7, it says, he summoned two of his servants and a devout soldier of those who were in constant attendance upon him. So there is that. Being with someone there constantly. In short, the Christian must have as his or her constant occupation. You must be absolutely absorbed in your own maturation and the maturation of the local church. This ought to be the normal lifestyle, the normal tempo, the normal rhythm of a Christian. And sadly, it is not. Sadly, when you say, talk about commitment in churches, people back off. Or sadly, there's churches who are not preaching the gospel clearly, and they're not calling people for commitment to these things. And so people hop around. If you ask the average San Diegan who calls himself a Christian, you ask them, what church do you fellowship at what church are you a member of well i go to this church in the morning i go to this church in the evening i go to that church in, in the afternoon and there is no real commitment to leadership no real commitment to the shepherding no real commitment to all of these things they go where they entertain them the most and that is not the design of god now if you want to mature in your faith, and consequently, notice these things. Four things, right? Apostles teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayer. You don't need a big website to do this. You don't need all kinds of marketing to do this. You don't need any flash, any fog, any purple lights. You don't need any of that. This is a simple, this is, and the church grew because of this. By the word of God, by the spirit of God, without reliance on any of the modern contrivances that we have. It was God who grew the church. Now, if you want to mature in your faith, and if you want to mature the local church, because you have something to input, you must be fully absorbed, fully immersed in these four disciplines. And let me add this before I continue. You cannot accomplish these disciplines on your own. You need the Spirit of God, which mediates the presence of Christ. You must depend on Christ. You're not going to be able to just put on your bootstraps and say, I'm going to just tough it out and just grow. I'm just going to grow. You have to, just as you were saved, you're going to have to depend on Christ for power, motivation, and strength. First, to the apostles' teaching, learn together about Christ. And I'm pick the, I pick these words very carefully. Learn 
together. The Bible does not call us to learn simply on our own. In fact, it says to learn together, even in Philippians, when we say work out your salvation, it's not a singular your salvation like I just do this on my own. It's actually a your second person plural. We work it out together in the community that is called the local church. Now, to learn together about Christ and the way I get this is from the apostles teaching. You must be a humble learner until you die. You have to come with an attitude of humility that I am going to learn and I am going to obey what is written in the scriptures until I die. You will not get to a point where you have arrived. You will not plateau in your growth. The substance of what you are to devote yourself is to the apostles' teaching. If you are a believer, you are a disciple of Christ. And at its root, disciple means learner. Lexically, by definition, it means learner. You will never arrive in knowing an eternity of truth. Even in heaven, as you are in heaven, the Bible says he will continually unfold the riches of his grace to us. That boggles my mind. For eternity and eternity, I will be learning and growing in the riches of Christ's glory. And it starts in this time span right here. God's design is that you are ever growing. There is no such thing as simply getting saved and not learning in God's word after that. Now, there are four aspects of the apostles' teaching. Maybe you could think of others. But there are four aspects of the apostles' teaching. First, what does this mean, the apostles' teaching? The apostles' teaching draws from Scripture. The apostles' teaching draws from Scripture. Quite simply, the apostles' teaching must have its source as the word of God. The public teaching and preaching of it draws from Scripture. We believe in what is called the exegetical exposition of God's word. Exegetical means to draw out, to draw the meaning out. Expositional means to bring light or to expose. We want to draw the meaning out of the text and explain its meaning. This is what drives all of the ministry. This is what drives all of the ministry. This does not mean, this is what it does not mean, okay? It does not mean that in the beginning, a pastor reads a scripture, then goes on to discuss whatever he wants to some unrelated political issue, some fond childhood memory, or unrelated poem. This does not mean a pastor relates a diatribe against something and merely sprinkles verses here and there, and then all of a sudden it's exegetical, expositional. No, that's not what it means. It does not simply mean I'm going to give you a historical look at Scripture to wow the audience with my vast knowledge of biblical archaeology. This does not mean I will shock people with unbiblical arguments in my apologetics. What this does mean, expositional, exegetical, what it does mean is that in every sermon, message, lesson given to adults, youth, or children must all derive its point, its meaning, and its argument from Scripture. That's what it means. We are drawing the meaning out and we are exposing it to the people. That is what feeds. 
That is what gives me strength. That is what matures. That is what causes the Christian to be strong. And that, brothers and sisters, is what causes us to want to share the gospel. And that is what causes us to want to sing to Christ. Now, there are many examples of this in Scripture. I'll read some if you want to jot it down and study it. It's quite interesting that this is the way that God's people get fed. The primary means. In Nehemiah 8.8, it says, And they read from the book, from the law of God, translating, or the word there is interpreting, to give the sense so that they understood the reading. So they read the text and they interpret it so that we understand the meaning. In the New Testament, you can just jot this down. 2 Timothy chapter 3, 16 and 17, it says, All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. That the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. And then it goes down in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1. After he talked about the sufficiency of scripture, that the word of God is all we need. He then says, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. So it is a explanation of God's word. You even see that in Acts chapter 2, verse 17 to 21, you notice he says here, and he quotes Joel, and then he explains this is what happens in Joel. Peter does it. Paul does it. They do it all through the book of Acts. It is an explanation of God's word. Secondly, the apostles' teaching unifies the body. The apostles' teaching unifies the body. It causes us to be unified in doctrine. It causes us to be of one mind. It causes us to be of one heart. In verse 38, he calls everyone to repent and be baptized. And it creates a new unity as they are baptized and brought into the membership of the church. But sometimes when you talk to people, and I have had the pleasure of traveling a lot and preaching many places, but sometimes when you talk to people, they always say, well, we don't want to talk about doctrine because doctrine divides. They'll say that. Doctrine divides. That couldn't be farther from the truth. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. Verse 11. So important that God... In his design for the local church, he gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers as they are teaching, as they are preaching, as they are shepherding. Notice it says in verse 12, for the equipping of the saints for the work of service so that it makes you ready, ready to serve Christ. But notice it says, to the building up of the body of Christ, verse 13, when, till when? Until we all attain to the unity of faith 
and the knowledge of the Son of God. In, in fact, it's quite the opposite. Doctrine does not divide. Doctrine unites true Christians. As you teach about God and you teach about Christ, the Bible says, as you faithfully expound the word of God, we all become mature to the unity of faith. It causes us to be unified in its defense. Notice in verses 14 and 16, it says here of Ephesians, it says, as a result, we're no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried away by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness in deceitful scheming. As you are under the faithful preaching and teaching of God's word, week in and week out, week in and week out, you become strong in the Lord. You're not as children in the Lord. You ever notice, even whenever we go to the beach, we still watch the little ones, even if it's just harbor. We still keep an eye on the little ones. In fact, that's why the moms love it when they have their own day at the beach without the little ones. Because they can be free, right? But when we have the little ones, we always watch them when they're by the, by the beach. Why? Because there's a strong undertow right over there. And they can be tossed here and there because they're light. And they could be sucked out to sea, right? What the Bible does in its faithful preaching and teaching is it causes you to be mature and equipped such that you could now discern, such that now you have firm footing, such that you mature in the Lord so that when the waves come, it doesn't bother you. And that's why all the kids always grab onto daddy when I'm in the water. Because now I'm stronger than them and I could hold them. That is what God's word does for you. And when you divorce yourself from that, or when you have spotty attendance in listening to the word of God, when you neglect being under the word of God, you are weak. And that's why when trials come, you don't have firm footing. You're not ready for it. The apostles' teaching centers on Christ, of course, this is not finding Christ under every rock. The apostles' teaching was very clearly and distinctly differed from the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees in that they brought out the Scripture's fulfillment in Christ. Preaching and teaching Christ-centered means, uh, if you would want to go back to Acts chapter 2 to kind of ground us, teaching and teaching, preaching and teaching Christ-centered means to preach and teach that refers to Christ either by direct statement, foreshadowing, typology, or by application and points to man's need to come to Christ as resource for motivation, strength, comfort, power to accomplish that which is mandated in Scripture. Uh, George Whitfield said that in most churches, he says, heathen morality is taught not Christ-centered preaching, right? Not dependence on Christ. And all this means is when we teach a lesson, lesson, when we teach a message, we don't simply give imperatives about how to live, but that you cannot do this apart from the resources that are in Christ. It's simply John 15. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. The apostles' teaching demands a response, and we know that from verse 
38, Peter says, it's not enough for you to simply know the facts about Jesus. You must make a decision. You must make a decision about who Christ is. You cannot stand on the fence. If you stand on the fence about who Christ is, your answer is no. Your answer is rejection of Christ. If you say, I don't want him now, that's rejection of Christ right now. You must make a decision. Now, to be continually devoted to the apostles' teaching, here's some application. I want to help you, okay? How do you put feet to that? You should strive to be at every service so that you can hear the preaching of God's word. You should, by opportunity, as we have Sunday schools and we grow, want to be to that. You should by every, be at every home fellowship if you can. You should strive to be at every discipleship group as much as you possibly can. You should read as much as you can from faithful teachers. Listen to faithful preachers. I remember when my um, mom used to take me to Farmer's Market in San Francisco. She would get me, I, I loved it because she would get me the sugar canes. You guys ever eat sugar canes? And you would you'd peel it with your teeth like that, and then you would rip the fiber, and I would just chew on that thing as much as I could. I would, it would look like a mess afterwards. I would just chew on it until every last drop of sugar was drawn out. That is how you should look at apostles' teaching, that you are going to squeeze every last drop of learning, of growing in Christ, and not to despise the word of God. I want to learn the word of God. I need it to refresh me. I need it to get my mind focused again. Secondly, to be absorbed in the growth of your own soul and the local church, you must first learn together, which is the apostles' teaching. Second, you must live together, and this is fellowship. The word there for fellowship means a partnership, a sharing, a participation. This is, this is Christian fellowship. Is this, it's the spiritual discipline that calls all believers to live a life of holiness and devotion centering on the person and work of Jesus Christ. It was purchased for us, it was brought to us, it was made possible to us when Christ saved you. If you remember, it says in verse 2 of 1 John chapter 1, it says, And the life was manifested, we have seen and bear witness and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested to us, verse 3 says, which we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you so that you may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Our fellowship with one another, our participation with one another, our sharing of lives of one another is made possible because Christ himself made fellowship with God the Father and him possible because of his blood. What we have, brothers and sisters, I call very precious. What we have is supernatural. What we have is what the world desires but doesn't have. And I, I get, I'm trying to penetrate into this culture, and I do it with the things I like to do. And I have sports that I do, and I have little groups that I do, and I notice that they call each other brother and family, and they have community. But I tell you, there is no such fellowship that is deep as Christian fellowship. 
Jesus was asked, hey, when Jesus was dying on the cross, they said, here is your mother. And Jesus said, no, that's not, who is my father, my brother, my sister, my mother? He who does the will of God. In fact, Jesus supersedes our relationship between Christian brother and sister over and above even family relationships. That's fellowship. The fellowship is where we get to exercise our one another's. There's many verses on this. Romans chapter 12, 10 says, Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor, not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer, contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality, hospitality, bless those who persecute you and bless and curse not. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. By application, devotion to home fellowship groups, discipleship groups is where this mutual love and spurring of one another occurs. It's no small thing. It is no small thing to forsake committed fellowship within a body of believers. To be an isolated Christian is to be in rank rebellion against God. You miss the blessing of those who are in the trenches with you. Let me read Hebrews 10, okay? Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Verse 25. Not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. I remember when um, <laughs> I was working at a warehouse, had a rough day at work. My own heart was at a bad place. I was at a sinful place. I was not content in the situation God put me. And I don't like being cussed at all the time at the warehouse. I was just getting cussed at all the time. I was tempted in, to sin in anger. And I know I was, in a, I was in a home group, and by God's grace, I said, God, I have no strength. Help me to go. Help me to go. And I went. I, was in a, I think I was in Robert Vega's group. Uh, he was an elder of my past church. And I walked in. I, I think I even came in late. I heard the saints sing. I had a brother put his arm around me. He says, I'm praying for you. And all of a sudden, my mind is right. It allowed me to refocus. It got me back to the right place where I needed to be. I need brothers and sisters around me. And you guys know this. I would have never planted without you. I would have never come out here without you because I need this. Not the fake, superficial pleasantries that people say, hi, how are you? And then just go on with your day. But the real, deep, intimate relationship that God has called us into as we participate in one another's lives. Where I am there for you and you are there for me and forgive me when I sin against you and I will forgive you and 
and let's be real with one another and let's grow in Christ together. Let's keep doing this. Let's go for Christ together. The Bible says to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. We share life together in Christ. It's not guys coming around play, to watch football. It is guys coming around to fellowship and to speak and to stimulate one another in Christ. It is celebrating the birth of a baby together because it's our baby together. Right? It is celebrating a marriage together because Christ has brought your young daughter and your young son together. It is burying our loved ones together and hugging one another and weeping with one another as we do it. That is fellowship, brothers and sisters. And that cannot happen if I am divorcing myself, separating myself. Number three. Number three. We are to learn together. We are to live together. We are to remember together. Remember together regarding Christ. And the breaking of the bread, we know that to be in context. That is the communion. Later on, it says, and they had meals with one another. What they used to do is kind of like us, is we would have communion, and then we'd have a potluck. And that's kind of like what, we, what they did over there. They would remember Jesus' sacrifice. You remember in uh, 1 Corinthians 11, Jesus says, to do this in remembrance of me. They would remember the gospel. And this is the gospel. That God has created man. And we have broke fellowship with him because of our sin. And our sin has a vast gulf between us and God. And we are condemned forever. And we prove it by our own nature and our own thoughts and our own actions. You prove it every day. Jesus Christ came in the flesh to die on the cross for our sins. He came out of love for us and out of love for the Father to glorify Him. He died on the cross. He lived a holy life. He died on the cross. He was raised again. If you would but trust in Christ, your sins will be placed on Him. His righteousness will be placed on you. And you will forever and ever be forgiven and into the fellowship with the Father and the Son. And into the fellowship with the saints. And you have a place in heaven with Him. Your life will be forever different. But you cannot ignore the sin issue. You cannot come to Him with negotiations. You cannot come to Him with deals. You come to Him with empty hands. And that's what you remember as you take the bread. That I am forgiven in Christ. You remember your unity. When we take it as a body. We are unified in mind. We are unified in heart. We are unified in doctrine. We are unified in our love of Christ. So we are to learn together in Christ. Live together in Christ. Remember together regarding Christ. And lastly, we are to call together on Christ. We are to call together on Christ, which means, and to prayer. This displays each other's love 
in the body. That's why we need to pray. It displays each other's love in the body. Look at James chapter 5. James chapter 5. James chapter 5. In verse 16, therefore confess your sins to one another, pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. It is, I'm going to pray for you, brother. I'm going to pray for you, sister. There is always prayers going back and forth, and I love it. I see it online, and I see what's going, what's happening but it's saying, it's saying to another brother, I know you're going through a hard time, okay? And I'm going to help you bear it as I bring it to our father. It's, as, it's another sister coming to another sister saying, I'm going to weep with you and I'm going to pray with you because we are called together and we are bonded together. It is a dependence on God. It's a dependence on God's provision for the body. Colossians 4.2 says this, Devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving, praying at the same time as well that God may open up for us a door for the word so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ for which we have been imprisoned in order that I may make, make it clear in the way I ought to speak. When we pray together, there is many kinds of prayers. There is prayer in the closet, Jesus talks about it. There is prayer that is a surprise. You're worried you're going to hit another car. You just kind of pray, God, help me. That kind of prayer. There is an ordered prayer uh, that is in Psalm chapter 5. O Lord, in the morning will I direct my prayer unto thee, will I look up. It is an organized prayer. There, and this is what is, this is talking about is our corporate prayer. This talks about when we get together and we pray for one another. This talks about we get together and we pray for initiatives in the church to go ahead and spread the gospel. We pray for works that would push the gospel forward. In short, it is the church saying together we depend on the provision of God to allow this church to continue. We depend on the provision of God to allow, to allow and to help us to push forward with the gospel, to reach more people with the gospel. It, it, is, it is depending on God for the strength to stand on what God's word says. It is a dependence on God. Now, these are four different disciplines. And I would vouch to you, um, if you're visiting or if you are from another place, if I would say this, if there is, if you're going to a church and there is no apostles teaching, and other, what I'm saying is there's no preaching from God's word. There's no declaring from God's word. It's not clear from God's word. If you are a leader and you can affect change, I would, I would encourage you to do that. But if you cannot affect change and change is unlikely, my advice to you is to run. And I say that with concern. The reason being, 
is that God's word is so important in the life of a Christian that it must be divided correctly and preached for the people because you cannot be strong without the word of God. If you are in a church that maybe preaches the word of God but really lacks in fellowship, there is no real love, there's no sharing of life and participation, I would say run. All it is is simply head knowledge in that church. All it is is dry theology. I would say run. If they don't obey in the ordinances, hold to, and I would say even hold to baptism and hold to the communion, there's only two ordinances that God has called us to do, run. That is not a church. If they don't depend on God by prayer, and they only think that they could just depend on their business marketing skills and their slickness with their email and their devices, if they only believe in that and they don't depend on God, that they need the Spirit of God to work in the hearts of people, run. That is not a church. We can help you maybe find a biblical church in your area, wherever you live. But I want to say that, and I say that not with, not with any disdain or anything like that. I only say that out of concern because you are not going to grow in that church. And that church is not really something that is being blessed by God. It may have all the bells and whistles, but it is not changing lives. It is not causing people to grow in holiness. It is not causing the people to grow in Christ-likeness. In short, it is not a church. Now, here's some questions to think through for real life change in Christ. So what are these disciplines that we are to be committed to? We are to, we are to learn about Christ. We are to live together in Christ, right? We are to remember Christ, and we are to call together on Christ. Call on him. Now, if you are a believer and you're doing these things in the power of Christ, press on, brother and sister, press on. See if you could squeeze more juice out of that sugar cane. His word is sweet, right? If you are a believer and you've allowed temporal life, your temporal life, to get in the way of your eternal life, you've got to ask yourself this question. What are the idols that, have allowed, that I have allowed to creep into my life that block out these devotions to God? What are those idols? Is it my career? Is it my kids' activities? Is it sports? Is it projects around the house? You've got to ask that question. Some people think it's an issue of scheduling and an issue of calendaring. It's not an issue of scheduling and it's not an issue of calendaring. It's an issue of your heart. Because if Christ is really worth it, you will change your schedule. If Christ is really worth it, you will prioritize God. If Christ is really worth it, you'd go to bed early on Saturday so you could get up early on Sunday to glorify him. If Christ is really worth it, you would get your kids to hear the word of God. Don't be fooled. Your kids see right through you. If he is not important, if these things are not important to you, they see right through you. 
You're saying Christ is important on one side of your mouth and you're not living it. They see right through you. And then you wonder as they depart from the faith, as they leave the faith, you wonder what happened. Well, you weren't living it. You weren't loving Christ and they saw through it. Would you? I invite you. If you do not know what this community called the church is all about, if you're an unbeliever and you do not know Christ, we invite you to call on him. Ask him to save you. Ask him to rescue you from your sins. Don't come to him with negotiations. Confess, that means to say the same thing, and repent, that means to change your mind and turn to Christ. There are blessings that you miss. Things about life that you miss, about God that you miss, about yourself that you miss when you don't devote yourself to these things. Ask God for strength to do it. And you will grow. I don't want to be in the, next, in the same place I am right now, next year. You ought not to want to neither. I don't want you to be in the same place where you are right now. I want to be growing in Christ, loving Christ, loving others more, loving his word, knowing his word more. Let's do that together. This is his design. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and we ask that your word would do its work in our hearts, that you would encourage and convict and cause us to move in truth. Lord, we pray you would do a mighty work in our lives. I pray for that person who may, this may be a, almost a foreign language. I pray that they would put their trust in you, in your son. Get saved, get baptized, join the church and learn to grow in these things. Help us all to grow. We love you. We praise you in Jesus' name. Help us to sing. Amen.